Hello fellow survivors, this is Brandon Crilly, one of the co-hosts of Broadcasts from the Wasteland, transmitting from my personal bunker deep beneath the streets of Ottawa, Ontario. This is the first volume in a potential series of virtual readings put together by myself and Adam Shafto in Niagara with contributions from various authors who have volunteered to share their work with you. Since literary gatherings and reading series are on hiatus right now, we wanted to bring you the experience of attending one of these events, or as close as we can manage, without having to leave your home. You can listen to this on your own, or get a bunch of friends listening in your respective bunkers with the usual chit-chat that happens at a live event. Before we begin, I want to give a shout-out to Felicia Devon, whose tweets about the hashtag Living Room Reading inspired this project. A huge thank you to Adam, who's responsible for stitching this together, and especially to the authors who have contributed their time to reading. Your involvement means a lot, both to us and I'm sure everyone listening. That's it for me, folks. Grab a beverage or snack and get comfy, because the time has come. Welcome to the No One's Alone Reading Series. Our first reader for No One's Alone is none other than Julie E. Cherneda. For over 20 years, Canadian author slash former biologist Julie E. Cherneda has shared her curiosity about living things through her science fiction, published by Daw Books. She completed her Clan Chronicles series with To Guard Against the Dark in 2017, following that with Search Image, the first Web Shifters novel, and the anthology Tales from Plexus in 2018, and The Gossamer Mage in 2019. The next Web Shifters novel, Mirage, releases in 2020, and we'll be treated to an excerpt from that right now. Hello, this is Julie Chineda. I'd like to read a little bit to you from Mirage, the next Essen Adventure, book two of the Web Shifters Library, out this August, in stores hopefully everywhere. Where we are right now is at the library, visitors bring their question, and if they've brought some new information, then they're allowed to ask the collection to get their answer. Evan Gooseberry is visiting the library, and he's helping this one group of aliens ask their question. And the question is this. A request for a list of Theta-class worlds, sorted by culture and species, open to refugees fleeing persecution, and where an individual's genomic privacy is guaranteed under law, give added weight to those of greater distance from the Sacris system, and or lessen contact with Sacrisy. Evan nodded to himself. Her request answered a question of his own, why they hadn't sought sanctuary closer to home by just walking into a Commonwealth embassy. Every species whose awareness encompassed such concepts knew the human Commonwealth welcomed refugees. A willingness to succor the desperate, be they human or not, part of the requirement for admission. Compassion with a dose of self-interest. Humanity was late to space, playing catch-up with those civilizations already there, and as a species evolved to form relationships, the best way to fit in was to learn entirely new ones. Luckily, adapting to the new and outright weird proved a human skill. There had been some growing pains with the program. Occasional confusion between snack food and pets, or worse, offspring. Early developmental stages being difficult to convey or secretive. Misunderstandings over what constituted desperate and refugee continued, as evidenced by younger Vickians of low status within their birth crush, who, on hearing of free food in embassy waiting rooms, would clog those rooms on their respective worlds until someone thought to notify the Avrikian equivalent of their nanny to haul the freeloaders out. At which point, the nanny would berate the ambassador, the sorting within crushes being natural, socially significant, and not to be circumvented by lewd humans offering disgusting scraps, and demand so-called hush credits to prevent scandal. Sacrisy were prone neither to petty theft nor extortion. The Commonwealth had an embassy on every world of the Sacris system, 
All these individuals had had to do was walk into the local one and plead their case to someone like Evan. Ah, but the next step would be a request for proof of identity, and that meant a genome scan. Return to the owner and wipe from records, but given the number of obligate predators and still incompatible biologies, let alone the vanishingly rare but still dangerous pathogens able to leap species, the Commonwealth is adamant, the rule firm, compassion was not to endanger those already in its care. Granted, the three were outside the norm for their kind, but they were still sacrosy, weren't they? Requests made, the female sagged as if spent. Her companions bounded to her side. The male groomed her left ear vigorously. The second female gave a shoulder for support, but it was to the human she looked for reassurance. Was it clear what I said? Did you understand my request? What we want and why? My understanding would be a human one. An amused, hoof. Then, speak it anyway. Evan chose his words with care. From your request, I understand there are sacrosy, don't accuse, don't make it personal, in need of a new inn beyond their sun, without barriers to those who are different. We didn't ask to be as we are, the other female replied. Sssst! She ignored the male's rebuke. This human knows we're the ones with doors closed against us. We're the ones threatened, forced out. You're exhausted. We all are, with a tail slap. The truth, human, we need more than sanctuary. We seek a true home, where our kind will be welcomed in forever. Hart felt that plea cutting to his core. Evan trembled with his earnest desire to answer it, to help them, saying, I hope the library finds you. One was worse than useless. He fell back on his training. Assist with the basics. While you wait for your answer, would you care to rest? The smaller females, hoof, hoofs, held doubt. True, none of the furniture suited their anatomy, but that, Evan thought, scrutinizing what was there, could change. Just give me a moment. That was Julie E. Chernada reading from her upcoming novel, Mirage. For our second reading, here is Kelly Robson. Hi, my name is Kelly Robson. I'm a science fiction, fantasy, and horror writer from Toronto. And I'm going to read you a story that I wrote last year. Um, It's very short. Sometimes I consult as a creative futurist, which means I get to go and spend time in rooms with really smart people who are thinking about the future. And then I go away and have to write a very quick story for them to uh, encompass some of their ideas and their worries and their uh, stresses about the future. So I wrote this story for the Suncor Energy Foundation last year. It's called Deadfall. Belinda Moberly had spent nine years patrolling the Saskatchewan River crossing, carrying an old Canadian Forces surplus rifle and riding a sure-footed trail horse. A low-tech approach to protecting Jasper's southern border, but she was fine with that. Better than fine, actually. She loved it. So when her supervisor announced she was being upgraded to hollow sight, semi-automatic, and a hover quad, she was not happy. You gotta be kidding. Belinda took a hard drag on her cigarette. She and Dan sat under the canvas tarp beside the fire pit, having a smoke and watching the rain stream off the warden station's cliffside howitzer emplacements. Below them, the bombed-out remains of the Icefield Parkway were disappearing under flood water. Shaw thinks there's a tech solution to patrolling this? 
She waved at the steep mountainsides across the valley, thick with deadfall, was the problem. You use tech all the time, Dan said. Do you know how much data you upload every day you're on patrol? Terabytes. This is just a way to do your job better. It's stupid. She was being too blunt, but she'd worked for Dan for a long time. He could take it. If I ride one of those bikes, I'll be a floating target for every pinpoint drone north of Banff. She used the glowing coal on the end of her cigarette to mime one of Stantec's drones, aimed it right at her heart, and circled it with eight quick staccato blasts. Ping, 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 Belinda's a dead warden. She stuck out her tongue and rolled her eyes back in her head. Then, one more drag off the cigarette took the tobacco right down to the filter. She tossed the stub into the rain. All you'll get is some drone jockey down in Lake Louise carving another notch on their cubicle wall. She'd seen what those drones could do, and it was no joke. Uh, detection has been a problem in the past, but Shaw's techies have a new shielding for the bikes. It works. Yeah, I'll believe it when they bring a vice president here to test it. Dan sighed. Listen, Belinda. Maybe you don't follow the news, but the water wars are moving upstream. It's not Edmonton versus Calgary anymore. It's Jasper versus Banff. And Ground Zero is right here at the headwaters of the North Saskatchewan. We do what we're told, right? For Mother Shaw. He waited for her to repeat the slogan, his eyebrows raised. If she didn't, Dan would note it on her employment record, and some HR manager in Edmonton would flag her for hazardous duty. Ha. Huh as if her job wasn't dangerous enough already. From Mother Shaw, she repeated. Truth was, Belinda just really loved her horse. If she couldn't ride, she didn't want to be a park warden anymore. Mistea was a little mare from Kip Kelly's outfit north of Hinton. Pure, fine trail horse. Mistea never stumbled, never slipped, and she could do 20 miles a day on vertical terrain through thick bush and heavy deadfall, picking her way up and down mountain slopes, felted with dead Douglas fir, while Belinda scanned the valley with her rifle's laser scope. But the horse didn't just know where to put her feet. Mistea spotted half of Belinda's kills. A flick of the ears, a sudden halt, a turn of her long head on that short, thick neck, and Belinda knew there was something out there. Most of the time it was a lone, barren ground caribou, wandering into the mountains looking for lichen. Sometimes it was an arctic wolf, following those few hardy survivors. But sometimes it was a Stantec scout encroaching on Mother Shaw's territory. She let the caribou live always. The wolves, too, of course. Belinda was more than happy to share Jasper with the wildlife. But Stantec? Dead meat in her scope every time. Before tucking into her bunk, Belinda visited the stable, carved into the side of Mount Wilson, and checked on her horse. Mistea wickered and nudged the stall's latch with her nose. Gotta stay in, old girl, Belinda said. It's dangerous weather out there, no place for you or me. Like any good trail horse, Mistea hated being inside. No choice, though. For three days the rains had been torrential, heavier than Belinda had ever seen. The weather monitors showed liquid precipitation, even on the highest peaks. Mount Athabasca, Mount Columbia, Mount Alberta, all inundated by warm rain, their thick snowpack melting fast. Shaw's database engineers had added new colors to the flood danger indication thermometer. It wasn't red at the top anymore, but purple, dark purple. 
But that was good, right? All that water would flow into the Athabasca and the North Saskatchewan and be captured by Mother Shaw's reservoirs. That was money in the bank for the good mother, and water for all of her people from Jasper to Saskatoon and all the way down to the demilitarized zone at Red Deer. Stantec might have Calgary and Banff, but their rivers were nothing compared to Jasper's. The Bow, Clearwater, and South Saskatchewan were just trickles, and Stantec's people only got droplets. Most of their water was contracted to the LDS Corporation in Utah. My great-grandmother always said, if you have a problem, tell it to your horse. Mistea flicked her ears. So I'll ask you, should I do this job from the back of a bike? Can I? What choice do you have? Sure, Belinda knew it was her own interior voice asking the question, but she answered it aloud. You and I could ride back north, beg Kip to take us on as a guide, haul trophy hunters from Japan and China into the Wilmore, and try like hell to find game for them to shoot, pretend like everything isn't changing. Everything's always changing. Yeah, I know. Tears rose to Belinda's eyes, cold, like the freshet coursing down the mountain slopes, lubricated by warm rain. Nothing stays the same, and I'm not young anymore, am I? Neither am I. Mistea, she said, you'll never die. The horse looked at Belinda with her big, brown, liquid eye, nothing more sympathetic than a horse's gaze, with that tenderly etched, worried expression that humans only showed in tragic circumstances. On a horse, it was there always, sympathy, understanding, care. Mother Shaw takes care of her people, Belinda said finally, so I'll defend her water. If that means making myself a target on a damn hover quad, I'll do it. Belinda cupped her palm on the mare's whiskered chin and leaned in to press her lips on that warm and fragrant nose. But you're still my girl, Mistea. When the drones get me, you'll take me home. That, once again, was Toronto author Kelly Robson reading her story, Deadfall. Our next reading will be from U.S.-based author Z.Z. Claiborne. There's a clue in the number of names Z.Z. Claiborne uses, C.E. Young, C. Young, Zigzag Claiborne, Thor M.F. Jones, that Z.Z. believes writers should have the same privileges as actors to inhabit a delightful variety of roles. He grew up watching The Twilight Zone and considers himself a better person for it. Science fiction, however, is where he calls home. Claiborne lives in Detroit, where he fine-tunes a plot for world literary domination. Find him on the web at www.writeonwriteon.com. First write as in writing, second write as in the direction. And on certain times, it's good to reach back to stories that are larger than ourselves. Stories that let us see that there is a way out of the forest. No matter how tall the trees, no matter how much light is blocked. I want to read to you a short section from a work in progress novella. It's about dragons. I'm Zigzag Claiborne and I hope you're doing well. We were addicted to dreams that were small, stealthy, and killed us by the thousands. We will sleep no more. The Prayer of Dragons. Section 1. Its scales were lovely. Olive green, massive, unusually warm. She ran her ungloved hand along them, knowing the slight touch of a small, old human didn't matter. A sleeping dragon wasn't a menace, it was money, plain and simple. Of those who had the knack of dowsing dragons, she neither considered herself the best nor the worst. 
True, there were people who'd done this same action a million times and swore each time they saw something, some deep cosmic vision. Liars. Liars and charlatans and mystery builders. Amphit supposed such people were necessary. A hellish world needed its fictions. At 65 poor years, she needed only two things, food and the means to accept retirement when it came. If dead Indrahunj were the means toward either, so be it. That was the prayer of Amphit Dal. Her mother had hunted dragons, she hunted dragons. It was the way of it. She put her glove on again. That green, iridescent-edged scale would do. She unfolded a rusting jack from her tool belt, pulled the scale outward as much as her gaunt muscles allowed, inserted the jack, made sure it was a good wedge, then pumped the scale outward enough to slide the knife inward and press. The flesh resisted, but after the first four inches, the long blade traveled easier. The trick was to avoid any of the analgesic getting on one's skin. An annoyance, not a danger. And she'd suffered enough numbness to barely notice it. But a sloppy job was a sloppy job, no matter the result. When the hilt met flesh, she depressed the plunger that delivered the poison, plus a measure of her own blood from the blade's sides and tip. The adagio had been refined over generations. An elegant name for death. She couldn't remember the last time a dragon so much as stirred during a culling. This one was large, 20 full cords at least. The entire cave smelled of its slumber, stale, thin exhalations, centuries of cells slowing off, the ecology of life and death flourishing around the beast's ambient warmth. Rodents dashed, not all of them afraid of her, but she was protected by the oil slathered under her wrappings and scale pads. They couldn't stand the scent of it. The poison took three days to do its work. Amphit pulled her folding chair from her slim pack, placed it facing the drop-down opening, and sat. Her rotary musket was heavy across her knees. She hadn't had a good divining in months. This was a good find. No matter how tired she was or dirty or painfully aware of the aches, the length of her tall frame, it was hers. God's help those who took what was rightfully hers after such a long trek down and up Semi Valley. Overcast as well the entire time. And cold. Colder than normal. The dragon was warm and the first day was always quiet. By the second day, the Indrahunj's subtle warmth lulled her into a deeper sleep. The emptied wine flask hadn't helped her, but her son had been on her mind. Tears or rage never made that particular ghost go away. Bitter monk wine did. Wine and solitude. Whisper ropes dropped into the cave. Very little light entered the underground space, which is why it was best to attack during earliest morning when bodies and thoughts were ill-formed. Scavengers knew to leave the more armed and protected successful diviners alone. It was the unsuccessful ones who lived under a constant network of eyes, the ones too poor to adequately defend themselves. There was only one way for the poor to lay definite claim to an Indrahunj with the blood of others. That was ZZ Claiborne. Our next reading comes to us from C.J. Levine. She is a Canadian speculative fiction writer who has been writing in various forms for most of her life. She holds a Ph.D. in communication studies, a master's in English literature, and a bachelor's degree in journalism. She grew up in multiple hometowns, but she most often claims Ottawa, Ontario, or Red Deer, Alberta, with a little Nova Scotia thrown in. 
She'll be reading from her debut novel, The Urban Fantasy in Veritas, which is coming on May 1st, 2020, from New West Press. This reading carries a content warning, specifically self-harm. If you wish to skip ahead, this particular reading is 9 minutes and 13 seconds long. In Veritas, Chapter 10 Once upon a time, at the very center of a lush jungle, flowers bloomed at the base of a great dead tree. No one knew how long ago the tree had died, or how many years it had spent growing. Its branches spread gray and twisted through the green canopies, and the monkeys and parrots left it bare. No butterflies sprang from the knots in its gnarled bark. Its trunk was so massive that three large men could not have encircled it with their arms. People spoke of it in curious whispers, but few knew how to find it, and fewer still knew the precise secret of locating the exact crack along its southern side. It was a tall crack, far too narrow for even the smallest child, but despite this, anyone who mastered the trick of it might be able to slip between. In the heart of this spreading husk, the right person might stand on a broad plain of sand spreading beneath a cloudless sky. In the impossible desert at the heart of the tree, at the center of the jungle, a young girl named Privia lived with her father in a tall stone tower. The desert has long since passed into legend, and the stone tower with it, because the world came to know that such things were not really possible after all. The desert was real to Privia, though. She knew where the lichen flowered at sunset, and how to suck the water from a cactus, and where the spiders dug tiny holes in the dust. She had a gift. Her father told her so. Every morning she would rise and throw a plain cloak over her shoulders, then take the curve of sharp stone that hung by the door and slice it in a line along the inside of her elbow. She would stretch out her arm and walk the circumference of the tower's base, letting her blood drip in red splatters that would vanish in the golden grains of the thirsty sand. It hurt every morning, slicing her own muscle like ripe fruit but she would smile a little and sing under her breath to the shifting sands and the worn stone. Here, she whispered to the desert beneath her feet, take it and be strong. When she was finished, her arm tingling and her skin sticky and hot, she would fetch the water bucket from the cactus bed and carry it up and up and up the winding stairs to the top of the tower. She would make tea in the cracked clay teapot, the old repair of its seal rough beneath her fingers. She would pour it into two cups, then take one to her father and set it on the desk just to the right of his hand. He would ask her, have you driven the jungle back today? And she would nod and he would smile proudly. He knew six uses for gold and one of them was to mend her flesh anew. He pressed glittering dust into the gashes of her arm and made her whole. The second cup of tea was hers. She would drink from it as she sat cross-legged on the floor and listened to the dusty scratch of his voice. Most of her father's conversation was meant to teach her things. He taught her how to balance wood against iron, what symbols contained a fire, how to coax the form of one stone into another, and how to capture the starlight caught in drifts of desert sand. When he asked, Privy would echo his words back to him or draw a quick sketch against the floor with her fingertip. When the pattern she mastered was exceptionally complex, he would smile. Sometimes her tea would get cold. Every year or so, some staggering wild-eyed stranger would come gasping to the foot of the tower in the hidden desert. 
It was Privia's task to descend the narrow staircase and open the tall door at the foot. She was never entirely sure whether the person pounding on the other side would be tall or short, woman or man or someone else, whether she would be met with exhaustion or bemusement or once, memorably, anger. She knew to step to the side, lest the stranger fall in and on top of her. She knew to wait for the pause while they blinked, surprised at the small girl with the bare feet and the neatly bound hair. They would hand her bags of lentils or rice, sometimes a bit of sweet fruit, then follow her up the stairs, their eyes growing large as eggs, and though it was not a terribly tall tower, sweat would bead on their faces. The wanderers, who had come a very long way to see her father, often quailed at the first landing. Once there was a woman who marched behind Privia all the way up, so quickly that Privia herself almost tripped to stay ahead. Mostly, however, Privia knew to stop and wait until the visitor decided to follow, or, uncommonly but occasionally, simply opted to turn and descend again, walking back to the desert with request unspoken. Privia was not allowed to be in the room when her father talked to these strangers. She would go outside instead and see if there was a horse or a mule she could water and pet. She liked the mules best. They were better company than the visitors. The years passed, mostly unmarked. Privia liked it when she grew old enough that her moonblood came and she could simply walk around the tower some mornings while warmth ran down her legs, but her arm remained whole and the stone crescent hung untouched by the door. The sand drank that crimson as easily as the other. Her father would ask, have you driven the jungle back today? And she would smile and they would drink tea. By then, the visitors were no longer surprised to see her at the door. You're the daughter, they would say, and she would bow and show them upstairs. They never stayed long. Only some of them were happy when they left. One woman who had laughed all the way up the stairs, cursed all the way down and kicked at Privia as she passed. Turn left at the scorpion, Privia called after, as she told them all, or you will walk and keep on walking. The desert keeps what it likes. The woman didn't answer. Privia never knew if she made it away or what she had come for. The world wants things, her father told her. Lead turned to gold, or water to wine, or the dead to the living. The world is also stupid and selfish. Tell me again of the five humors of metal. She did. Then she washed the tea mugs and built up the fire for a stew. It seemed as though her life had always been this way, and might always be, but outside the tower Privia could see the desert changing. The changes were small, the pebbles that had shone brightest in the moonlight lost their glow over time. One morning, she went to fetch water and saw that a strange moss had grown across the ground. She plucked a moist handful and took it to her father. Seeing it, he shook his head. There is only so much of you to bleed. The jungle is getting bold. Ignore it. Otherwise, it will only be encouraged. Privia nodded. Resolute, then, she ignored the subsequent peppering of small creeping vines across the tower's base. A week later, she let the distant shrieking calls of some odd bird go unremarked. But every morning she bled herself, and she walked, and she let the crimson wardings spatter on the ground. The desert sands rolled hotter under her tough-soled feet. 
Perhaps a month after that, when Privia was strolling around the tower's perimeter, her bleeding wrists downturned and her head tilted back to catch the brightness of the sun on her face, something sharp and wholly unexpected stung her ankle. She looked down to see a glossy black and red serpent writhing in the dust. She said, hello, but her breath caught at the fire running up through her veins. She took a step and her leg folded beneath her. She fell to the ground and the snake bit her again, just beneath her left eye. She lay there for what seemed a long time, with her nerves burning and her lungs too small for her chest. She lost track of the snake. She wanted to cry out, but the only sound that escaped her was a sob. Her breath was no louder than the wind, and she knew her father would not hear her, would never come down from his vials and books and pots of ink. A single bloom of yellow was growing on a vine just in front of her. She would have touched it. The petals looked soft, but her fingers felt fat and stiff and her arm wouldn't move. Agony twisted her muscles, curling her spine, but she smelled the desert heat and watched the flower until her tongue grew too large in her mouth and she couldn't breathe. That didn't hurt as much as she thought it would. The flower blurred and glowed until Privia slept. She was surprised to wake. That was C.J. Levine with an excerpt from In Veritas. Up next, we have Phoebe Barton. Phoebe is a queer trans science fiction writer who has been trying to branch out into other realms of being. Her short fiction has appeared in venues such as Analog, On Spec, and Kaleidotrope, and she is writing the interactive fiction game The Tunnel Crew for Choice of Games. After six weeks of wildness at the 2019 Clarion West Writers Workshop, she returned to living with a robot in the sky above Toronto. Purple Fall was her first short story written at Clarion West, but not her first try at working through personal trauma with a story. Purple Fall by Phoebe Barton No one had ever seen a divinity, of course. Even the intercessors trafficked only in images, feelings, absences. Whatever chance glimpses my father might have had would have been dimmed by Purple Fall. The signs had been everywhere. The violet lines tracing his eyes like Taylor's chalk. Conversations where every word had to be raised from his throat with rope and pulley. And I'd explain them away. He's busy. He's tired. It happens. It'd been too heavy to think about. I didn't want to imagine a flake of purple fall, so light it might as well hover but so heavy with poison, had melted on him. What was left of my father was even heavier. My family had trusted me with the ash-filled urn because I'd been the closest to him, but if I'd been worth that trust, I wouldn't have had to carry it. Carrying him from the altar to the grave was life reversed. How many times had he carried me when I was only months removed from dust? Don't worry, I whispered as I lowered him into the ground. The urn's crystal cap sparkled in the afternoon sunlight. Maybe the last light it would ever see. I'll make it right. If no one had ever seen a divinity, someone would have to be the first. It's going to feel weird, girl, said Levia, the only person I knew who didn't just see, but observed. Remember to breathe, hey? Assuming, you know, there's air there. It had taken months to gather all the supplies. There's no rushing an expedition to the light source, after all. 
and even then I expected to be dazzled. I'd enlivened green morning robes with enchanted red threads embroidered into numinous equations. On my hip, I carried a flask of lucky tea brewed with switchgrass and bamboo. On one hand, I wore a knuckle duster topped with a space bar from an antique typewriter, and around my neck, I wore a glass pendant enclosing a lonely flake of purple fall. They were all significant, all freighted with meaning. The divinities were built from meaning, the way people were built from molecules. I promise I'll come back, I said as resonators hummed and cameras kept vigil. You're not going to go through this twice. Better not or I'll come after you. Levia stole a quick kiss that I returned to her cheek. If nothing else, at least the lipstick stain would prove I'd been there. Not gonna have all this be for ashes. There was no experimentation. Either it'd work, or it wouldn't. The same way you're either dead, or you're not. Ready. Levia gave me a good luck gesture, flipped the switch, and went. Everything went, except the weight on my shoulders, on the crown of my head, pressing me, compressing me, twisting my insides, everything except my voice. And so I screamed even though this deep in the darkness, I was sure no one was listening. The light source has as many names as there have been people to name it, but they all describe the same place. It's where the divinities dwell, where they tilt the world like a pinball machine, where they look down on us to see how much better they've got it. That wasn't what the intercessors said, of course, but that was what it boiled down to. I appeared there in a flash of noise, a roar of taste, a flavor of light, crouched under the sky. It was blue and cloud-flecked, but as low as a basement and unyielding against my fingertips. In the distance, I saw structures cut clean. Divinities! I shouted at the rocks, the bushes, the few trees short enough that the razor sky hadn't sliced off their leaves. There was no telling what divinities looked like in the light. Even light so dim, I had seen lighthouses that shone brighter. I've come to talk! Are, are you an ambassador? The voice was faint, but true. I followed it to a set of temple steps leading up to a porch speckled with the feet of obsidian columns with just enough room for me to crawl between floor and sky. Inside, a gilded head fixed me with a pleading gaze. I recognized her. Yora, divinity of dawn. Her eyes were like sunrises, wide and dazzling. Her arms lay shattered beside her. Her fingers were no more than pebbles. How could someone like this tilt the world? You've come for us? Yora's words were heavy, heavier than anything I'd carried. To make it right? I had to look away, so I looked up. Here, the sky was a net of violet threads, and I made fists until my nails threatened to break through the skin. Even here, purple fall fell. Even here, the world was poisoned. Even here, death visited. I looked into her eyes, riven with cracks and sanded down, and saw fear and terror and absence. No wonder things were as bad as they were. The divinities tilted the world, sure, but at least they had objectives and goals. The world on its own only existed for existence's sake. 
what happened here? Time, Yara said. Decay. We thought it would never get away from us. We overestimated ourselves. Are, are you here to help? Did you come to lift the sky? The smooth roof of the world was cold to the touch, but I had come prepared. I poured some tea on Iora's riven lips to secure her blessing. I closed one fist around my necklace to remind the purple fall that I had trapped it. I raised my spacebar knuckle duster and felt a crackle of energy as it touched the sky. I didn't, I said, but while I do it, I'd like to tell you about why I'm really here. I braced my hands and feet against the heavy, purple-veined sky and pushed with all the strength it had stolen from the world, all the endurance I'd found while braving the wrecked world it had left behind, all the understanding that a sky shouldn't be solid at all. I thought of Levy waiting for me, trusting in me not to fail. I felt the sky give just slightly and lift. A little more room to breathe. I'd like, I said, to tell you about my world. It was a start. That was Phoebe Barton with her short story Purple Fall. As they say in Monty Python, now for something completely different. Our next reader is one of my CanCon accomplices, Aaron Rockford, who will be reading from a non-fiction piece. Erin is an Ottawa-based SFF writer and psychotherapist. She spends her free time running the Lightning Round reading challenge on her blog and posting too many opinions on Twitter. She also recently started a podcast of her own, which you can find under the hashtag Brodacious Book Club. I doubt whether a doctor can answer this question in general terms, for the meaning of life differs from man to man, from day to day, and from hour to hour. What matters, therefore, is not the meaning of life in general, but rather the specific meaning of a person's life at a given moment. To put the question in general terms would be comparable to the question posed to a chess champion, Tell me, master, what is the best move in the world? There is simply no such thing as the best, or even a good move, apart from a particular situation in a game and the particular personality of one's opponent. The same holds true for human existence. One should not search for an abstract meaning of life. Everyone has his own special vocation or mission in life to carry out a concrete assignment which demands fulfillment. Therein he cannot be replaced, nor can his life be repeated. Thus, everyone's task is as unique as is his specific opportunity to implement it. As each situation in life represents a challenge to man and presents a problem for him to solve, the question of the meaning of life may actually be reversed. Ultimately, man should not ask what the meaning of his life is, but rather he must recognize that it is he who asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life, to a life he can only respond by being responsible. Thus, logotherapy sees in responsibleness the very essence of human existence. This emphasis on responsibleness is reflected in the categorical imperative of logotherapy, which is, Live as if you were living already for the second time, and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you were about to act now. It seems to me that there is nothing which would stimulate a man's sense of responsibleness more than this maxim, which invites him to imagine first that the present is past, and second, that the past may yet be changed and amended. Such a precept confronts him with life's finiteness, as well as the finality of what he makes out of both his life and himself. 
Logotherapy tries to make the patient fully aware of his own responsibleness. Therefore, it must leave to him the option for what, to what, or to whom he understands himself to be responsible. That is why a logotherapist is the least tempted of all the psychotherapists to impose value judgments on his patients, for he will never permit the patient to pass to the doctor the responsibility of judging. It is, therefore, up to the patient to decide whether he should interpret his life task as being responsible to society or to his own conscience. There are people, however, who do not interpret their own lives merely in terms of a task assigned to them, but also in terms of the taskmaster who has assigned it to them. By declaring that man is responsible and must actualize the potential meaning of his life, I wish to stress that the true meaning of life is to be discovered in the world rather than within man or his own psyche, as though it were a closed system. I have termed this constitutive characteristic the self-transcendence of human existence. It denotes the fact that being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself, be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgoes himself by giving himself a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. What is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all for the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. Thus far we have shown that the meaning of life always changes, but that it never ceases to be. According to logotherapy, we can discover the meaning of life in three different ways. By creating a work or doing a deed, by experiencing something or someone, and by the attitude we take towards unavoidable suffering. The first, the way of achievement or accomplishment, is quite obvious. The second and third need further elaboration. The second way of finding a meaning in life is by experiencing something, such as goodness, truth, and beauty, by experiencing nature and culture, or, last but not least, by experiencing another human being in his very uniqueness, by loving him. And we must never forget that we may also find meaning in life even when confronted with a hopeless situation when facing a fate that cannot be changed. For what then matters is to bear witness to the uniquely human potential at its best, which is to transform a personal tragedy into a triumph, to turn one's predicament into a human achievement. When we are no longer able to change a situation, just think of an incurable disease, we are challenged to change ourselves. It is one of the basic tenets of logotherapy that man's main concern is not to gain pleasure or to avoid pain, but rather to see a meaning in his life. That is why man is even ready to suffer on the condition to be sure that his suffering has a meaning. But let me make it perfectly clear that in no way is suffering necessary to find meaning. I only insist that meaning is possible even in spite of suffering, provided, certainly, that the suffering is unavoidable. If it were avoidable, however, the meaningful thing to do would be to remove its cause, be it psychological, biological, or political. To suffer unnecessarily is masochistic rather than heroic. Let us first ask ourselves what should be understood by a tragic optimism. In brief, it means that one is, and remains, optimistic in spite of the tragic triad, as it is called in logotherapy. A triad which consists of those aspects of human experience which may be circumscribed by 1. Pain, 2. Guilt, and 3. Death. This chapter, in fact, raises the question, 
How is it possible to say yes to life in spite of all that? How, to pose the question differently, can life retain its potential meaning in spite of its tragic aspects? After all, saying yes to life in spite of everything, to use the phrase in which the title of a German book of mine is couched, presupposes that life is potentially meaningful under any conditions, even those which are most miserable. And this in turn presupposes the human capacity to creatively turn life's negative aspects into something positive or constructive. In other words, what matters is to make the best of any given situation. The best, however, is that which is in Latin called optimum. Hence the reason I speak of a tragic optimism, that is, an optimism in the face of tragedy, and in view of the human potential, which, at its best, always allows for turning suffering into a human achievement and accomplishment, deriving from guilt the opportunity to change oneself for the better, and deriving from life's transitoriness an incentive to take responsible action. Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, and I, bringing you this very cheerful piece of nonfiction, have been Aaron Rockford. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. That was a reading from Aaron Rockford, which brings us about midway, folks. Our next reader is Dan Stout, with a short story about orcs, hobbits, and love. Dan Stout lives in Columbus, Ohio, where he writes about fever dreams and half-glimpsed shapes in the shadows. Dan's stories have appeared in publications such as the Saturday Evening Post, Nature, and Mad Scientist Journal. His debut novel, Titan Shade, is the first volume in the Carter Archives from Daw Books, followed by the sequel, Titan's Day, which released on April 7, 2020. My name's Dan Stout, and this story originally appeared in Slink Chunk magazine. Grind my bones, scatter my ashes. A love story. Jenna shifted to her right, then her left. The orc mirrored each move, its sunken, no longer human eyes locked on her own. She risked a glance at her machete, sitting by the sink where she'd left it in a moment of temporary foolishness. She'd been so glad to find running water and electric lights in the old public bathroom that she'd let her guard down. For just a moment, she let herself believe that the world wasn't going mad and that a rooftop reservoir and fluorescent lights weren't extravagances. What had that gotten her? An orc that stood two long paces closer to her weapon than she did. You gonna make a move, big fella? She smiled showing her teeth, and the orc did the same. Its double rows of jagged shark's teeth almost obscured the human molars behind them. Even if she managed to walk out of this alive, any one of those teeth dripped with enough virus-laden saliva to infect her a hundred times over. The orc thumped its chest and worked its misshapen mouth. Eh, vent. Jenna grimaced. Yeah, evil. She hated it when they talked, most orc infected were driven mad by the transformation, but some few stayed self-aware. The thing's head wagged, its jaws worked harder, lips stretching almost to splitting as they strained to form syllables around protruding fangs. No, eh, vent. It thumped its chest once again. Was it trying to tell her its name? Jenna looked closer at it, trying to anticipate its attack. But the orc merely cocked its head, as if listening to a distant sound. Its eyes widened and thick claws gestured her away. Back. Get back. Now Jenna heard it too. The pitter-patter of oversized feet. The orc turned, exposing its vulnerable back to her as the door flew open and a pack of wee ones flooded into the bathroom. Each the height of Jenna's thigh, they were clad in earth tones and long capes, their eyes wild as they gnashed at the air with mouthfuls of rounded teeth. Orcs were bad. Hobbits were the worst.
They rushed the orc, and the bigger creature slashed out with thick-clawed fingers. Hobbit blood splattered the walls, infusing the air with the smell of hops and barley. Jenna grabbed her machete and leapt atop the sink. The orc should have been able to cut a swath through them and exit, but he stood firm, like he was protecting her. The whole situation was frodoed up beyond belief. But Jenna knew that there was no fighting defensively against superior numbers. She sprang from the countertop, which gave way beneath her boots with the snap of metal piping. She felt a twinge of remorse for the water spraying from the wall, but it was quickly forgotten as she landed next to the orc and began hacking into the large-footed potato grubbers. There was nothing she hated more than hobbits. It had all started when archaeologists found diminutive human skeletons. Small femurs and skulls, the same size and structure as the ones she now slammed into the bathroom floor. Hobbits had seemed like a cute name, and when the paleobiologists decided to go all Jurassic Park on the remains, no one thought there would be any real consequence. The orc beside her, Evan? He seemed to be filled with hatred for the little monsters as well. He continued to attack, ignoring the jabs of their small blades and struggling to keep his balance on the water-slicked floor. It was hobbits, or leprechauns or whatever they were, that had caused the orc virus. Something about them was supernatural, and when science brought them back from the dead, magic swept the world like a fungus. Cities collapsed, replaced by verdant green hills with homes in their sides. Cows sprouted wings and breathed fire. That's what ended the world. The Hobbapocalypse. Around Jenna, the hobbits were fading. It hadn't been a large pack, and she and Evan, damn it, she and the orc, faced the last few. But the floor was too slippery. With a roar, Evan fell to one knee, a hobbit clinging to his neck. It clawed at his eyes, oversized feet kicking at his stomach while two of its fellows closed in. The orc peeled the attacker from his throat, but he was left exposed to the blades of the other two. Jenna found herself running towards the scrum and screaming, Get down! She leapt just as she reached him, and her machete swung a tight arc, cutting into both hobbits and silencing their deranged shrieks. But she hadn't leapt high enough. Her knee caught Evan squarely in the face. He went down on his back, the last hobbit squeaking as its bones crunched underneath his bulk. Jenna landed hard on the tile floor. The spray of water was down to a trickle, the remnants of the hidden reservoir emptying across the carnage like a light spring shower. Groggy, she rolled over and stared at her leg. Blood welled from a ragged tear in her jeans. Jenna tried to curse, but her throat constricted. She'd slashed herself on Evan's deadly teeth. No shot of penicillin was going to fix this. There was only one way to stop an infection of the orc virus. She'd have to kill the one who infected her, perform a ritual, and scatter his ashes by the cover of night. Stupid magic. A shadow fell across her prone form. Evan stared at the cut, rubbing his jaw where she'd hit him. <clears throat> he said, then squatted down beside her. She struggled to sit, putting some distance between them while tightening her grip on the machete. You know what could do? He raised his chin, exposing his throat. Jenna watched him as she stood, favoring her wounded leg. Look, she said. I'm sorry. I'm fine. Yeah. Evan. She drew her arm back, the machete's handle slick in her hand. No, Evan. The orc still held his head up. Ice Vaughn. Yeah, Ice Vaughn. The orc raised his left hand, showing her the gold band on his third finger. 
Jenna blinked and the bathroom blurred. Her tears turned the fluorescent lights into stars, and she made sure to take his head in a single swing. Getting his body to the roof was a struggle, but she managed. While she caught her breath, she peered into the rooftop reservoir. As she feared, it had been drained to its dregs. She swore and looked back at Evan's body, still covered with gore and wounds he'd received trying to help her. She'd never been married. The orc's madness had made him see in her a woman who was almost certainly long dead. But the fact that he had done so much for the woman he thought was his wife? Some days, even Jenna wanted to believe in a fantasy like love. She filled her canteen half full, and with a muttered curse at her sentimental foolishness, used the last of the clean water to bathe Evan's body. She was extra careful with the wedding ring, scrubbing it until it shone as if new. When the ceremony was over and the fire died down, she scraped together his ashes onto a spare bit of corrugated metal, holding her breath, careful not to inhale any of the fine grit. Carrying the ashes to the roof's edge, she paused to look out on the skeletal remains of the city. She recited no prayer, said no words of mourning, but a careful listener may have heard a whispered, Thank you, as the metal upended and the ashes were given to the night. The wind caught them, and they flew, scattering, dispersing, disappearing like his curse across the star-speckled sky. That reading again was Dan Stout. Coming up next, we have a short story from Kate Hartfield. Kate is a writer in Ottawa, Canada. Her latest book is Alice Payne Rides, book two in a duology about a time-traveling highway woman. She also writes interactive fiction. Her latest game, The Magician's Workshop, is on the Nebula shortlist this year. She can be found on Twitter at Kate Hartfield or on her website, hartfieldfiction.com. Chameleon by Kate Hartfield. Originally published in Daily Science Fiction, September 2019. I'm glad you can't see me. I lied to the girl in the window seat with the rainbow hair. It's okay. I'm not much to look at. I'm not beautiful like you. She's my age, but I'm not made of rainbows and a propaganda t-shirt. At the moment, I'm a girl made of a rough polyblend weave in brown and blue with a drop of baby puke, a splash of Diet Coke, and a lot of sweat. My arms are indistinguishable from the molded beige plastic of the arms of the chair. But as far as bus rides go, this one isn't too bad because no one's sitting on me. Sure, the rainbow-haired girl threw her backpack on me, but it's a small, light backpack with Johnny Appleseed sticking out of it, and I don't mind riding with it on my lap. I'll keep it safe for you, I say, knowing she can't hear me. The bus wheezes to a stop, and a man in a trucker hat gets on. There are two empty seats, and there's me, and I look like an empty seat. Please, no. I say, though he can't hear. Please, keep walking. He pauses right next to me. So close I have to squish to avoid his jeans. For a moment I think he senses me. Sometimes I wonder about men with that look in their eyes, whether they sit on me on purpose. They seem to enjoy it. I prepare to shut my mind down, to wait it out. But the girl doesn't move her backpack. Her head is half-shaved up to just above her ear and it's growing in golden below the rainbows on top. I wonder what it would feel like against my fingers, a shaved head like that. Move your bag, the man says. She turns to him, pops pink gum between pink lips. Nope. She makes that nope last a hundred years. 
He stares at her for a hundred more, and I'm thinking how my luck is the worst, but he just rolls his eyes and steps down the aisle, muttering, Damn millennials. My mother is a millennial, the rainbow-haired girl says, super loud. She grins, and once he's sitting somewhere else, she picks up her backpack and puts it on her own lap. There, she says. There aren't any more stops until we get to Toronto, so you should be safe now. I blink hard, forgetting to avoid doing that because the movement weirds people out. In kindergarten, back when I didn't realize I was starting to blend into the world, I gave a boy nightmares by handing him a pair of scissors. Are you talking to me? Sure, she says with a smile. You can hear me. You can see me. She sighs. My ex-girlfriend was a chameleon, some of the time. She used to fade into the background when we were around other people. Now that I know the signs, I can't unsee them, I guess. Sometimes I've noticed other people who are like me. But we never talk to each other, acknowledge each other. I've never heard us called chameleons before. My mom just called me freak or sneak back when I could turn it on and off when I could choose to be seen when I wanted to. Wow, I say and then blush, which is bad because it looks like a shadow where no shadow should be, but I can't help it. So I guess you heard everything I said before? Yep, she says, and this yep lasts so long it sends shivers all over my body. She's smiling at me. Thanks, I'm Hannah. Julia, I say. It's been a long time since I've said my own name. Are you going to Toronto? For starters, yeah, I need somewhere to hide from my life for a while and think about stuff. Somewhere where nobody knows me. Blending in is my specialty, I say. That and pancakes. I'm so happy that I made her smile, even though she seems to smile a lot, so it's not that hard. But this one is my smile. I made it. I think it's rad that you can change into anything, Julia. If I were you, I'd go into art galleries all the time and just become the art, you know? Van Gogh. I really like Van Gogh. I nod, but I've never been to an art gallery. I used to go to the mall and stand next to a fake waterfall. It had these lights that would change the water into different colors, like your hair. She tucks a strand of blue behind her ear. It's pierced three times, but one of the holes is empty. Can I try something? she asks. And my body knows what it is before my brain will believe it's true. I nod, and she holds her right hand out, palm up. I slowly put my left hand over hers and watch it take on every shade of her skin. Our arms slide together, and then I'm wearing a little of her t-shirt. There's a stray sunset-colored hair on my shoulder. And then, for the first time in years, a little of myself sneaks in, a moving shadow on both of our arms, like a ripple in ice cream. She gives my hand a squeeze before we let go. That is super cool, she says. A couple of hours to Toronto, and I am in no hurry. The end. And that was Ottawa author Kate Hartfield. Our next reader is Marie Billado, an Ottawa-based author and storyteller with eight published books to her name. Her speculative fiction has won several awards, has been translated into French and Chinese, and has appeared in various magazines and anthologies. Marie is also a storyteller and has told stories across Canada in theaters, tea shops, at festivals, and under disco balls. She's won short story slams with personal stories, has participated in epic tellings at the National Arts Centre, and has adapted classical material. The Kevlar Canoe by Marie Billado. 
The voyager pulled hard on the reins, riding the night wind down, cutting clouds to shreds as he maneuvered the modified bark canoe. He checked his weapons, edging the insides of the canoe stuck to the Kevlar lining with basic Velcro. Tested weaponry combined with new protection often worked best when dealing with old demons. He pulled the reins to the left, the canoe obeying. The wind cut by his ears, and he heard his spray booming, cracking against the air and slapping the sides of his canoe, which trembled in anticipation of the fight. He rode the currents, following the small fissures in the ancient sky fabric, keeping a close eye out for demons that might break through. The veil was thin, and each attack made it thinner. Trees blurred by as he forced the canoe to move faster, until a village sprang up in front of him, surrounded by pines, houses blending into the dirt. Another hit, and red waves rode the skies toward him. He grabbed his axe and stood tall, screaming as he brought it down against the first wave, the red shattering and crashing to the ground. The second wave erupted, and he struck again. His shoulders popped under the strain, and he screamed his fear. He had failed to break the second wave. The canoe shook and moaned as red flickers exploded around it. The voyager threw himself to the bottom of the canoe, covering his head with his arms. The third wave hit before he could stand. It struck hard, but the canoe slid sideways to absorb some of the impact. The voyager smelled burning and hoped the old canoe would hold together. There were so few of them left. He stood and looked to his target, now visible against the shockwave of its own attack. The small northern Quebec town was dominated by the steeple, still standing after centuries. From his vantage point, clutching the reins of the canoe, he could see the fissures in the stone where the toll of the great bell had begun to rupture space. The voyager grinned. He loved this part. The steeple saw him approach, and the great bell sighed once before moving sideways. The voyager grabbed his staser and forced the canoe to go faster, but the bell struck before he could reach it. The sky glowed with a hue he had never seen in this world. A type of green, maybe? That's not good he mumbled. The wave of color highlighted hundreds of tiny rips, moans erupting from each of them as the encroaching demon dimension smelled a new world to conquer. Faster, he implored, and the canoe slid on the currents, avoiding several fissures large enough to gobble them up. The canoe lined him up, passing left of the steeple. He fired the taser at the bell, but a nun jumped from the steeple and absorbed the blow. The voyager swore and pulled back, letting her fall as gently as her garbs allowed. She floated silently to the ground. He ignored her. His battle was with the bell, not its servants. He reloaded the taser, the stench of burning flesh clinging to it. The bell struck as the canoe made a turn. Blue light, so electric it made the voyager's eyes water, lashed out in bursts of lightning. He tried to counter the attack with his axe. But it came too strong. The canoe reacted and pulled up, protecting its rider from the direct hit, taking it fully itself. It shrieked over the sound of the bell and fell out of the sky, thundering against the ground. The voyager held on, the canoe loyally absorbing the shock, bouncing and skidding on the uneven terrain. 
Before he could recover and get his bearings, the bell struck again, and snow streaked from the sky, pointed stars meaning to impale. The canoe flipped over, protecting the voyager with its wounded flank. What the old bark could not stop, the layers of Kevlar did. The sound of impaling wood hammering the voyager. He whispered as he placed a hand on the side of the canoe, trying to make himself as small as possible. Hang on, old friend. I promise if we make it through this, we'll get you some new toys, a new Kevlar lining, and a cannon. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Hang on, old friend. The canoe did not respond. The attack ceased, and the voyager didn't hesitate, cutting through his own thick breath and grabbing his favorite double-edged axe. He pushed the canoe aside and jumped up, screaming as he leapt to the bell, three stories cleared in one leap, and pierced it with his axe. The bell shifted sideways, but he was ready. This wasn't his first battle, and he didn't intend it to be his last. Shifting sideways, he let the bell move into the upward swing, positioning himself under the metal behemoth. As soon as he was underneath it, he jumped into its mouth, holding on to its clapper. He reached up to release it, but it was secured by a chain. He swore as the bell started its downward swing. He took a deep breath and wrapped his legs around the clapper to stop it from ringing and causing another rift. The bell bit him, trapping him between the clapper and its great metal shell. Bones snapped. The voyager grunted and spit out blood. His grip on his axe loosened. The canoes were getting older and slower, but the bells only became more powerful with time. The voyager fought a gag, the stench of worn metal slamming his throat. The bell shifted and cracked, ringing without its clapper. The voyager's eardrums bled, but the bell was distracted now, just enough for him to shake free. Another ring. Something was attacking the bell from outside. The canoe! He ignored the tearing in his gut and pulled himself up, grabbing his hunting knife and plunging it into the chain that held the clapper. The bell screamed as he plunged the knife deeper, a terrified shriek that turned to a guttural moan as the clapper fell. The voyager slipped with it, and would have fallen had he not been caught by what remained of the canoe, shards of wood held together by glue and kevlar. The bell moaned for several minutes, and the silence that followed was accompanied by a gentle snowfall, illuminating the land. The canoe fell on the ground letting the voyager step out before shuddering once and lying still. The voyager dropped to his knees and clung to the canoe. He pulled off his gloves, then placed his hands directly on its old wood. But he felt nothing, not a whisper, not a sigh, not even a goodbye. Please wake up. Hot tears flowed down his cold cheeks. If only he had veered right first or maybe used something stronger, like a bow. Maybe he should have called for help, but there were so few of them left. For years the canoe had been his only companion. They all had only each other. And now? Are you okay, monsieur? A small voice perked up from nearby. The voyager looked up, his vision blurred by grief. A child, wrapped in blankets and hope, stood near. The voyager took a step away from the canoe, toward the child. The canoe shuddered once, just a bit, and then a branch sprouted from its plank, 
and another, and another. They grew quickly, turned green, bore bright red fruit. The canoe seemed to dance as it crumpled into branches, one after another, until there was nothing left of it but a large bush ripe with fruit and pieces of melted kevlar. The voyager leaned over and plucked a piece of the fabric, brought it to his nose, and smelled wood, which prevailed over the stench of melted chemicals. A final gift from the canoe. He closed his eyes, said a silent prayer, and then turned to the child who stared wide-eyed at the bush. "'If you eat those fruits,' the voyager said, recognizing the curiosity in the child, knowing what path now beckoned him, "'your life will never be the same.' The child didn't look up to him, simply staring at the new bush, the grave of the old canoe, a gift from the land to the land. The voyager watched the child take his first step towards the bush, called by the red berries to take on a mantle he did not yet understand, but would soon enough. The voyager grabbed his axe and turned to the forest. This last bell had been strong, and had probably summoned demons through the rifts. He could use the diversion until he found a new traveling companion. Maybe there was a canoe that needed a rider out there still. Maybe something else would be sent to accompany him. Movement caught his attention, swift and clunky, and fuzzy. A Sasquatch had slipped through into this world. The voyager gently pocketed the piece of fabric. He limped off into the forest, clutching his axe, tracking the invader. He never once looked back, letting the whispers of the land guide him to his next battle. That was author and CanCon co-chair Marie Billado reading her story Kevlar Canoe. Next up, I'm going to turn things over to our second-last reader, Lex Beckett. Hello. My name is Lex Beckett. I am the Toronto-based author of a Hopetopia novel called Game Changer. You can find me online at lexbeckett.com or on Twitter, also at Lex Beckett. That's L-X-B-E-C-K-E-T-T. This story is called Zero Sum. It is a piece I wrote in 2017 after the Future Affairs Administration very kindly invited me on a trip to attend a workshop in Danzai, China. And I'm going to read the beginning of it because, like all of my works, this one is longer than a 10-minute reading will allow. So I don't have anything I can just read you all of. Uh, sorry for that. Zero Sum. Ishan was the first of the contact team to see the pale spaceships with his actual flesh-and-blood eyes. The lead craft had broken over Guizhou province in the dead of night, gliding downward on a straight vector, giant button strung from an invisible plumb line. Millions tagged the alien's first appearance on camera, uploading every available feed from the sats above. But the descent was so slow. Most people thumbnailed the arrival of off-worlders to their peripheral displays, Screw historic, those viewers told their electronic sidekick. Ping me when the aliens do something. Were the pale going out of their way to be boring? By dawn, they had managed to park that first saucer. The thrills, the chills, step right up, folks. In this ring, Earth's first off-worlder visitors will hover. Maybe they had come for the view. It was as good an explanation as any for the position they'd chosen. This mid-air perch above an abyssal South China mountain gorge 
far from the population hubs of Asia. Showing off is what it is. Ish struggled to breathe as he stared. Motionless, silent, 200 meters up. Were they kidding with that design? 150 meters in circumference, maybe 20 high, the ship was a big frisbee, the stuff of cheesy films from the emergent days of sci-fi. He couldn't say why that resonance with the clichés of cinematic history felt almost offensive. Perhaps the annoyance cushioned him from thoughts of being up there, suspended and schmoozing with humanity's would-be conquistador. Nothing up my sleeve. Licking his lips, he scanned the bottom of the ship for escape hatches. The contact team had parked its popovers as close to the saucer's hover point as possible. The diplomatic mission's staging area was, thus, a glorified roadside pullout, a wide ledge surrounded by agricultural plots. Purposed for tourists, the viewpoint offered stunning overlooks of the Shanle River Gorge. Mosaics of white and black pebbles formed interlocking patterns on its walkways. Birds with elongated beaks, alternating with circles of sea stars with scythes for tentacles. At the cliff's edge, a spectacular meow pagoda served as a picnic shelter. He sat beneath the pagoda, unpacking his favorite breakfast, printed idli, potato korma, and a mint lassi to wash it all down. Plus hot black tea, naturally. Comfort food for a difficult situation. As he chewed, Ish zoomed in a hundred times on the saucers, switching from the input of his own eyes to the view from the popover roof cams. The transition was second nature, easy as shifting a cup from one hand to another. The ship was brick-colored with irregular yellow flecks. Magnified views of its surface showed bumps and distortions. He was reminded of the baked surface of a fruit pie. Despite the mist, he could see a second saucer now, too, directly above the first and descending at a crawl. Ping! Harshvardhan is requesting private conference. Except. Ish switched views again. The pagoda, mountains, and saucer remained unchanged, but now icons for virtual properties crowded in. Augmented reality stationed graphics in a vertical ribbon along his right peripheral. Steampunk was one of Isha's favorite fandoms, so the apps were gloriously vintage, brass and cogs, big dials, and clanky old-fashioned sound effects. Illusory and yet crucial, the apps collection held the keys to his life. He took a quick scan. Inbox, personal popularity, your local weather, cash flow, luxury credits, health stats, calorie budget, carbon debt. A mirage of his twin brother manifested beside the control panel. Harsh was rendered in black and white, a sensorium convention meant to remind Yish in case he somehow forgot that he wasn't physically present. London was seven hours behind Guizhou, and Harsh was just stripping after an evening show. His base coat was standard nanotech primer, second skin currently configured into gartered hose and slippers. He was pulling off his costume, flimsy printed recreation of a coronation surcoat, when Yish accepted his call. Bloody fantastic! Dropping the surcoat, Harsh gaped at the immobile saucer and the mist-wreathed second disc overhead. You think everything's fantastic. Don't neg, brother. The world is watching. It was true. A cartoon odometer tops on his ribbon of apps showed Isha's real-time follows rising. All those sidekicks had pinged their subscribers. Wake up, world. The second ship's almost in place. The number of people looking through Isha's eyes climbed to 16 million. We can hear you, Harsh crooned. Yeesh shivered. Check poles, he subvocalized. A pressure gauge appeared above his follow counter, cartoon doubling as infographic. The gauge showed the general mood of the populace regarding the contact mission. Right now, its needle was in the green. Humans were, this morning, cautiously optimistic about the coming talks. 
Can you smell anything, Harsh asked? Feel any... what? Vibrations? Is your skin tingling, for example? Yes, Ish thought. But the electricity suddenly running through his body had nothing to do with alien saucers or their potential subsonic transmissions. It was pure sexual longing. Luciano Pox had emerged from another popover. Physically present, full cover, and oblivious to the remote presence of Ish's brother, Luce looked about 30 and wore a body tagged to the northern Italian gene pool. He had wispy blonde hair, olive skin, and a brawler's physique, with a low center of gravity and exquisite shoulders. Pox? Harsh groaned. You can't be bloody serious. How does he always know? Why not, Luce? Yish subvocalized. He'd spent years learning ventriloquism. His lips didn't move when he spoke, sotto voce, to his built-in mic. Why ever not? He's not even human, Harsh said. This was true. Luce was an off-worlder, one that other off-worlders had converted to data. Did that make him a ghost? An artificial intelligence? A copy of a formerly living being? The courts and churches weren't entirely sure. But convert him? They had. The guests in the saucers above had uploaded Luce into Earth's sensorium years ago. Marvel at it, folks. First contact via friend request. Stop ogling him. I'm not. He's the bloody enemy. He switched sides, remember? It wasn't Isha's fault that embodiment, human style, looked great on their alien defector. Newly printed people glistened like newborns. Their sleek, first-run skin cells were luminous and milk-scented. Lush, angelic eyebrows, gleaming teeth, even his fingernails were flawless. And apparently razor-sharp. Luce had his hands fisted, and they were drawing blood from his palms. Ish pinged for consent, then reached for one clenched fist. All right, Luce? What do you know about the state of me? Harsh snorted. Yeah, bring him home to mum. Ish took Luce's utterance as a medical question peering with a detached-sounding hmm into the pale eyes as he queried pulse and blood pressure data. Luce's primer took the readings, sending the heartbeat as sound, a light staccato rhythm, not quite tachycardia. Snare drum, ratatatata, played in his ears, merging with his own, boom ba boom ba boom Breathe, Luce. Oh, sure, all fun and games until rude, he gestured to set the saucers. Tosses me out an airlock. That's not going to happen. He's a petty, vengeful, incompetent. Oh, yeah, Harshford observed. Now I see the attraction. Yish ignored this. I can print you a stronger dose of sedatives, Luce, if you'd like. The vibration of fear seemed to pass. Nah, don't need tranquilizing. Rude wouldn't dare. Empressel cauterizes noodles if he makes the situation worse. That's good to know. Let go. I'm okay now. Above them, the second ship settled atop the first, seven hours to the second after it entered the troposphere. Like teeth clicking together, Ish murmured before his brother could ask about the sound. Harsh immediately opened and shut his jaw, trying it. A fluffy dolphin-shaped cloud momentarily obscured the sun, stream of water vapor revealing another pale ship, a dot of shadow on the cloud's white surface, stacking pancakes in slow-mo. Ish's follow number began running downward, humanity's way of saying, ping me when they do something else. Thank you for listening. And that was Lex Beckett with a reading from Zero Sum, which sadly brings us to our final reader for this event. Kari Morin is a Toronto-based writer, cartoonist, musician, and university instructor who likes writing stuff about monsters and gets unreasonably upset when her students abuse the common apostrophe. Her novel Weave a Circle Round is a YA fantasy with science fiction-y bits published by Tor Books in 2017. This reading is from Weave a Circle Round by Kari Morin, starting at the end of chapter 6 and heading on into chapter 7. 
All you need to know at this point is that the protagonist, Freddy, is a very angry 14-year-old girl who has just had a very bad day. She's finished a fight with her stepbrother and has gone storming off out of the house with uh, her frenemy, Josiah, who lives next door and is rather mysterious. He also lives with a rather mysterious woman named Quervilla Shans. So Freddie and Josiah head for Josiah's house and they open the back door to enter the house. And then this happens. She followed him through. She felt her right foot break through the crust of the snow and she reached out to steady herself on a tree limb and missed. Freddy skidded to her knees in the middle of a snowy forest. Josiah was just ahead of her, his fists jammed into his pockets, his shoulders sagging in a resigned sort of way. When she turned to look at the yard behind her, she saw nothing but more trees, and much, much more snow. Chapter 7 Get up, said Josiah. Unless I miss my guess. A silken whisper close to her left ear was followed by a thud and a noise that sounded very, like, boing. Freddie found herself gazing up at an arrow vibrating in the trunk of a tree. Small lumps of snow pattered from the branches, making holes in the white carpet that surrounded her. The battle's over there, said Josiah, and threw himself to the ground. Also, maybe you should forget what I said about getting up. He dragged himself behind the tree with the arrow in it. After the briefest pause, Freddy followed him. Okay, said Josiah. If I'm remembering correctly, what happened here was that somebody's daughter ran off with her father's deadly enemy's son and Group A has set fire to Group B's mead hall. We're in Sweden. Oh, said Freddy weakly. Good. They weren't aiming at us, said Josiah. I don't think. Unusual of these guys to use arrows anyway. They're more of a sword and double-headed axe kind of people. Are they? said Freddy. Look through there. He leaned a bit around the tree and pointed. Freddy, the snow beginning to seep through her jeans and turn her legs numb, scooched around so she could peer past the trunk. She couldn't see much. She thought they were near the edge of some sort of forest. There seemed to be a clear space starting maybe a hundred feet away. Through this space, people were running back and forth. She heard the occasional incoherent yell and the dull clash of metal on metal. We'll have to wait until they settle down before we try anything, said Josiah. It's going to get a bit cold. Freddy's teeth were chattering. She thought it was already more than a bit cold. Okay. Josiah looked at her sidelong. You're not taking this well, are you? She sat and stared, her mouth opening and closing soundlessly. Ah, said Josiah. Shock. Come on, it should be safe to get up now. We have to keep moving if you don't want to freeze to death. He clambered to his feet and held out a hand. After a moment, Freddy took it. Her head was pounding worse than ever. She wondered if concussions caused hallucinations, and if so how detailed they got. The thing is, said Josiah as they started through the trees, this was always going to happen. I normally don't sit around and wait to be walloped upside the head by destiny, but this was already a fait accompli. My advice is to suck it up. A brisk wind rattled the branches, sprinkling more snow on the forest floor. Freddy said, I don't know what I'm sucking up. 
He stopped, faced her, and sighed. Stop thinking of it as a dream. It isn't. A hallucination? asked Freddy hopefully. Real life, said Josiah. It's Cuerva Lachance's fault. To be fair, she probably didn't mean to do it. The house has been getting a little hazardous lately. I've tried to calm it down, but thanks to the last choice, she's dominant at the moment. I'm suspecting she has no idea she's turned the back door into a time portal. If she does know, she'll forget immediately. Time portal, said Freddy. Yeah, we've landed around the turn of the ninth century. That's impossible. Freddy's own voice sounded strangely polite to her. Stupidly, she looked at her watch. It showed the same date and almost the same time it had five minutes before. Of course it's impossible, said Josiah. That's why it happened. He set off through the woods again. Freddy hurried after him. But I've got school tomorrow. No, said Josiah. You've got school in 1,200 years. She didn't know if her headache was to blame for the growing feeling that she was teetering on the edge of a bottomless pit. You've done this before? Never, said Josiah. First time. But you, she started. Listen, said Josiah, this isn't possible. Do you understand? There is nothing about this situation that makes sense. Everything I do makes sense. This is an amusing little present from Chance. She time travels constantly. She does it because she can't. Every so often, the insanity spills over into my life, and I find myself doing something I can't be doing either. She does it, said Freddy, because she can't? It's her purpose in life. Josiah's voice was suffused with gloom. She's continually popping back to have tea with herself yesterday. Time travel is completely impossible, he explained, holding a branch back so Freddy could nip through into a small clearing. Can't be done. I'm suspecting you people will spend centuries trying to perfect it, but you'll fail in the end. How do you know? The general lack of time travelers, said Josiah. If it were possible, they would be bouncing around all through history, but they're not. I'd have noticed. You'd have noticed them bouncing around all through history. I've seen most of it, said Josiah in his best world-weary manner. It's not all it's cracked up to be. It was strange how calm she felt. The calmness was rimmed with knives, though. Freddy turned to face him again. So we've traveled in time, she said. We've traveled in time, said Josiah. Which is impossible, said Freddy. Which is, in fact, impossible, said Josiah. Except we've done it anyway, said Freddy. He scrubbed his hands through his hair. Look, there are some things about Cuerva Lachance and me that we may have neglected to tell you. Are you aliens? said Freddy. What? No. Are you vampires? You seem to be experiencing some bizarre side effect of hysteria, said Josiah. We are not vampires either. Note that I am standing full in the sun as I say this. Maybe you should calm down a bit before we continue the conversation. Calm, said Freddy. I'm calm. You're shouting. I can be shouting and still calm. We are standing 500 feet from a Viking raiding party, said Josiah. Stop, 
shouting. Okay, said Freddy, who thought she might as well. Why a Viking raiding party? Why are we here? Josiah hopped delicately over a snow-covered log. Sheerest accident. Almost. Since I'm involved, there's a certain logic to where we ended up. Three will be around here somewhere. Three what? Just three. It's a person. This particular time around, his name is Braggy Bodison. That's a name. You don't even want to know what he would say about Frederic Duchamp. The yelling and clashing in the distance had died down. Freddy stood in a Scandinavian forest, 1,200 years before the date of her birth, and struggled to accept the fact that she was doing that. This couldn't be real. But it was cold, and she was knee-deep in snow, and the sun was making patterns on the ground as it beat through the branches, and this couldn't not be real. Josiah was watching her. He didn't look particularly cold. He was hard to see behind the red and black stains spreading across her vision. All right, said Freddy. And then the black swallowed everything up, and it stopped mattering what was and wasn't real. That was Kari Morin reading from Weave a Circle Round. Hello, and welcome to the end. I'm Adam Shafto, and I've had the pleasure of being your audio engineer on this project. On behalf of Brandon and myself, I want to thank all of our readers for their contributions. Your time and talent made this possible. Likewise, my thanks go out to my partner in crime, Brandon Crilly. Brandon is one half of the podcast, Broadcasts from the Wasteland, and you can check that out at www.broadcastsfromthewasteland.com. To close, I'm going to indulge the absolute power of the audio editor and read you one last thing. This is a line from David Tennant as Dr. Rufus Weller on the 2018 series Genlock. Needless aggression, unscrupulous greed, unchecked hate. To have these images, these headlines, incessantly thrust at you, hour after hour, years at a time, you normalize to it. They want you to go numb, to become indifferent, or to lose yourself in distractions, for it to feel like the evil in this world and all its machinations are too big to challenge. That loss of control leads to despair. To re-engage... To claw back even the tiniest sense of control, you don't have to save the world. You just have to make a difference where you can, with the opportunities you're given. That's all I'm asking. This has been the No One's Alone reading series. Stay safe out there.